If you were going to describe the general trajectory of a life in America today, you might say something like this. Like this, it's not going to be perfect for everybody. At six years, elementary education. At 13 years, higher education. At 16 years, freedom to drive. At 18, legal adulthood. At 21, full adulthood. At 25, the marriage of partners. At 35, experienced in your career path. At 60 years, retirement. True, it's not accurate for everyone, but it does present something of a general path. Would it surprise you to learn that there was a similar saying in the Jewish community from just after the time of Jesus? It goes a little something like this, translated. I'm not going to do it in Hebrew. At five years of age, the study of scripture, written Torah. At 10, the study of Mishnah, oral Torah, including commentary. At 13, subject to the commandments, bar mitzvah, bar mitzvah. At 15, the study of Talmud, legal decisions. At 18, the bridal canopy. At 20, pursuit of livelihood. At 30, the peak of strength. Now, that may not sound all that different, though I'd argue about 30 pretty strongly here. Some of the time frames are certainly departures from the modern world. But keep in mind that education in the ancient world was hugely expensive in terms of supplies and time. Paper was rare when it existed at all. Papyrus was somewhat available, but was still pretty expensive, and parchment even more expensive. Teachers needed to wander from one town to another to reach the wider community, since mass communication was millennia away. There was a real burden to educate widely, and so most ancient societies that had any use at all for the written world, word set up hereditary classes of scribes, or maybe priests, or if they weren't willing to set up that infrastructure, they would just go out and war against people that did and capture them as slaves, keeping them as scribal slaves. By Jesus' day, though, the, the writing franchise had expanded in the Hellenized world. Greeks, Macedonians, Egyptians, later Romans, all emphasized the written word, too. But only among Jewish people was universal literacy expected. Well, okay, expected for Jewish men, at any rate, until much later, but Universal literacy among Jewish men. That's why even today, part of the ritual of entering adulthood for Jewish people, the bar or bar mitzvah, is proving that you are literate by reading from the Torah directly. So, if paper is expensive, and uh, parchment even more so, and your teacher wanders from one place to another place, how is education accomplished? How do you think education is accomplished? You can speak out louder. <laughs> Word of mouth, yeah, okay, sure. Yeah, questions, questions and answers coming forth. Memorization was key. You couldn't have the scroll, the scrolls carrying around. Can you imagine a, instead of a book bag, a scroll bag to carry everything with you? It would be kind of exciting, actually. But uh, because that was pretty difficult to carry large scrolls with you everywhere you went, 
You memorized. And even to this day in the Middle East and other parts of the world, you can see people working on memorizing their scriptures. Um, this is more true in Islam than it is in Christianity. Uh, and some Jews do it, some don't. But there's this sense of wandering around, speaking the ancient words, memorizing them, hearing them coming from your mouth and remembering them in that way. Everyone in the ancient world, man and woman alike, was supposed to commit the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, to memory. You were supposed to have those first five books memorized. It was supposed to be so well known that you could recite it to your kids. And if someone quoted a scripture, you would immediately recognize its context and be able to quote the next passage yourself. Teachers were held in high regard except for one thing. They were not allowed by custom to accept coin for their work. Weren't allowed to be paid for their work, although they could receive shelter and sustenance, which was seen as a different thing altogether. To be called teacher, rabbi, as it became known, you had additional training. Memorize not just the Torah, but the whole of the Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings comprising more than what has been kept as the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. In addition to the commentaries and legal decisions based on the Torah, the Mishnah and the Talmud, brought those in a little bit earlier. You also, in addition to all of this memorization, agreed to follow a different rabbi until they agreed that you were ready to head out on your own. That is, you were to disciple yourself to a master teacher and follow in their way until they told you, you are ready, go out into the world on your own. The term for this discipling to a master was the yoke, the yoke of a disciple to a master. They thought that it was the same um, idea as two beasts of burden being connected together and pulling that burden together, that yoke that connects them, the yoke that connects a disciple to a master. After all, the disciple was binding themselves to the Torah and pulling the burden of interpretation along that rabbi's path. For some, this task was heavy and burdensome, but maybe worthwhile in the end for accolades and prestige that would surely follow after you followed this famous rabbi. In our world, this would be something like the grad student who slogs through the program, each required paper being written to the rubric and no further, exactly as described, hard work. Or maybe it's like the doctoral student who's been working on a thesis so long that the entire discipline holds no interest anymore, no joy, just slogging to get that PhD. Their yoke sits uncomfortably on their shoulders, the cart behind becoming heavier and heavier as each new book and paper is read and analyzed. For others, though, there is a delight in the task. The shared burden means a lighter load, and the joy of learning transforms the yoke into a delightful cape. At least that's how Yeshua ben Sira describes it in the book of Sirach, also called Ecclesiasticus. Not Ecclesiastes, mind you, but Ecclesiasticus, because we have to be separate and different in every way, shape, or form. He writes in chapter 6, 
My child, from your youth, welcome education, and you will continue to discover wisdom until you are gray-haired. Approach her like one who plows and one who sows, and wait for her good fruits. When cultivating her, you will labor a little, but you will eat her produce soon enough. Put your feet into her shackles and your neck into her yoke. In the end, you will find rest in her, and she will turn to you and make you happy. Her shackles will be a strong shelter for you, and her yoke will be a glorious robe. You will wear her like a glorious robe, and you will put her on like a crown of joy. Now, you may have noticed in this passage that Yeshua ben Sirach, uh, Sirah, excuse me, like the book of Proverbs, personifies wisdom as a woman. Wisdom in Hebrew and Greek is a feminine word, chokhmah and sophia. Now, clearly we use the Greek sophia as a woman's name even today. We have this connection to this idea of lady wisdom. And so in the book of Proverbs, Lady Wisdom is seen calling out to the young and naive, come eat my food, drink the wine I have mixed, leave your simple ways behind, and begin to live. Learn to use good judgment. However it's, pre however it's presented, taking wisdom's yoke, eating her food and drink, living wisely in wisdom's shelter, it is about living and acting wisely in the light of God. After all, Proverbs 9 reminds us that the foundation of wisdom is reverence for God. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. Now in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus takes this a step further. He presents a very short parable of a generational battle, a child in the streets condemning the others who presumably are elders, since this is a child speaking to the others, by saying, we played the flute for you, and you didn't dance. We, played a, we sang a funeral song, and you didn't mourn. That is, people are scoffing at the work of God, no matter how it's couched. Jesus uses this to point to the asceticism of John the Baptist, who neither ate nor drank, yet they say he has a demon and the radical love of Jesus himself, who they claim is a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus concludes the parable teaching, wisdom is proved to be right by her works. Now, I'd love to be able to claim that this was Jesus dropping the mic and walking away in current parlance, but, you know, he does go on speaking, so harder to see him dropping the mic right there. There is something comforting to me in that vision of one generation calling out to the other before it, the others before it, hey, listen, God is acting in the world and you're not looking. Wisdom is bearing fruit right before your eyes. Why are you not paying attention? I see echoes of this in the boomers calling out, you makers of war and hidebound establishment, the times are a-changing. I see this as Gen X and millennials call out to the boomers in turn. You who taught us to mistrust established institutions are now surprised when we don't trust you. I imagine, too, that the next generation beyond the millennials will cry out to them, you who taught us that the establishment was corrupt, let us show you how to work together for the common good. 
back to the biblical text for a moment. Notice that Jesus is referencing Lady Wisdom as presented in the books of Proverbs and Sirach. This is definitely intentional since he actually goes on to ascribe to himself the role of wisdom personified. Come to me, all you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear, and my burden is light. Jesus is claiming wisdom's yoke as his own. His yoke, his instruction, and his way is the way of wisdom familiar to the Jewish people. And in fact, in this passage, the word that he uses for learn from me is literally disciple yourself to me. We don't really have that as a verb in English. We don't say to disciple, but this is what it is in the Greek that is presented here. Unlike other teachers, Jesus explicitly calls those whose lives are a struggle to follow him. Heavy labor leaves little time for spirituality. And so Jesus says he will give them rest, the rest of Sabbath, the rest of renewal and rejuvenation and resurrection. Put on my yoke and learn from me. Literally, this is more like put on my yoke and disciple me. Be a literal Jesus follower, so close to Jesus that you're bound together by a yoke pulling the same cart, doing God's work, Jesus' work in the world as you are yoked together. Walk where he walks. Do as he does. Don't just learn of Jesus, but learn from Jesus. In this way, the burden of the way becomes easy. The yoke is of kindness, the master of gentleness. The burden lightened by the joy experienced in discipleship, in learning, in going from town to town, living, breathing, and experiencing wisdom's yoke in Jesus. And so may you yoke yourself to Jesus, following him as he appears in the hearts of all you meet. May the rigors and trials of life be overcome with the pure joy of the Holy Spirit. And may God open your heart and the heart of your generation to listen to God's holy wisdom, guiding us to the kingdom one day at a time. Amen.